This is Crossroads, the Get Religion podcast. It is interesting to read in the media how divided America is now. That claim has, well, while it's true, has been taken up in earnest by the media since the leak of Justice Alito's draft opinion in the Dobbs v. Jackson case. Case in point, The Atlantic with the headline, America's blue-red divide is about to get starker as abortion rights are rolled back in certain states. The gap between the country's two dominant political coalitions will widen. Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So is America getting more and more divided, or are some in the press beginning to catch on to some very old trends? Well, first of all, the trends are very, very old. Second, there have been some people, I would say at the level of op-ed page land, that have seen these trends for quite some time. And every once in a while, you would see pieces in the American press that kind of was like, wow, those people out in flyover country really don't understand, or we don't understand them, or whatever. Uh, What's the Matter with Kansas, for example, was the name of a famous book that essentially was about, like, why don't those crazy people in Kansas vote in their own economic self-interest and vote Democrat? When, of course, the reason they're not voting that way is primarily cultural and moral issues. But um, this is the sort of situation to where if you or someone like me who is, well, rather old, you've literally seen these things, and in my case, you've been writing about them. Like you just said in the intro, you said most of your life. Well, in my case, certainly the second entire half of my professional life as a journalist and then as a teacher and as a columnist, and... um, recently marked the anniversary of my own religion column, the syndicated column, as I headed into my 34th year. So I was marking the end of a, of a third of a century writing that column. And eventually, I realized that people who listen to, you know, you and I talking about these kinds of issues have got to be getting tired of some of these illustrations, but they can't get tired of them Because out there in the world of blue check Twitter land, this is with the pending and possible overthrow of Roe, we are talking about the end of life in the United States as we know it. Literally, in a lot of remarks, the end of democracy. Even though the overthrow of Roe would not ban abortion, it would push the decision to a different stage of the democratic process, which would be states. And so really what we have here 
is not only a, a growing tension between red America and blue America. And see, that's a reference back to the the famous map of Al Gore versus George W. Bush. And that's been a couple of decades now. And that led to the famous image that I always think about was when someone took the Bush states, and I believe this was in USA Today, they took the Bush states and the Gore states, and then they took the Bush counties and the Gore counties, and eventually someone did what they actually should do, which is the zip codes or the area codes, the telephone area codes. And what you end up with, of course, is the famous map of red America and blue America, which quickly became known as a battle between Jesus land and the United States of Canada, as some people called it, or the United States of reason and logic and education or something like that, some sort of even starker display. But for me, reading this Atlantic piece, and there's been like, gosh, three or four of these pieces in just the last, well, two weeks for obvious reasons, but in the wider sense, it's still essentially the people who live between Washington, D.C., and Boston attempting to make sense out of the 2016 election and how it happened and how they didn't know about it and how scared it made them. And now that's all coming home, of course, because of three Supreme Court justices and being added to the mix and the potential, the very real potential, for states being able to make decisions about an issue as crucial to the left, some would call it the sacrament of the cultural left, that would be abortion. I can walk you through a couple of the things that I've noticed, you know, over the last 30 years that for me form a kind of connecting of the dots of my own thinking on this. But I'll, I'll go ahead and not bury the lead. I think the real thing that people are upset about right now and an unlikely figure for a lot of people in our audience perhaps noted this in a book that I've been pumping like crazy for a year and a half now, which is David French's book, Divided We Fall, in which French says that really what this whole fight is about is the whole concept of federalism, the whole idea that different states of the Union might have different laws on subjects that matter to the people on the extreme left and the extreme right. And with the extreme right, we see that with tensions over differing laws about gun control and maybe immigration positions and whatever else. And on the extreme left, the positions are almost all moral, religious, and cultural related to the various doctrines of the sexual revolution. I found some things to agree with in the Atlantic article and some things that frustrated me and maybe I missed something but the most frustrating thing that I think the Atlantic article left out was and maybe it was a tacit acknowledgement but it wasn't explicit that Roe never settled the question Roe actually exacerbated the debate over right. over abortion and that's part of the reasoning 
<laughs> and I think they didn't acknowledge it for this reason, that's part of Alito's reasoning in that leaked opinion. He says it's made things worse. Well, and then we had Ross Douthat writing a much-discussed on Twitter column about that, which, by the way, got a, a sharp vote of endorsement from several people that I consider among the centrist or even ever so slightly right of center branch of the Democratic Party, noting that to some degree the politics of our era were created by Roe. But let me read you the two paragraphs. I know that's a lot to read on the air, but there's two paragraphs in the Atlantic essay that I think are really crucial. This is the thesis of the article. And what I wanted to point out was like two or three phrases in particular. Here we go. The fundamental divide in our politics today is between those voters and places, emphasis on places, most comfortable with the democratic and cultural changes remaking 21st century America and those most hostile to them, what I've called the democratic coalition of transformation and the Republican coalition of restoration. A decision overturning Roe versus Wade, especially on the sweeping grounds of Justice Samuel Alito's draft opinion that was leaked to Politico, would sharpen the confrontation between these coalitions. I think a lot of people on the right right now would say that they're not trying to restore anything as much as they're trying to defend the right to live out their lives as they want. They're trying to defend the First Amendment. But the, the key thing I, I tried to emphasize with my voice there was those voters and places. Okay, I'll continue reading. Alito's draft, if finalized, would place the GOP-appointed Supreme Court majority firmly on a collision course with the priorities and preferences of the racially and culturally diverse younger generations born since 1980 who now constitute a majority of all Americans and who overwhelmingly support abortion rights. It would amplify the already accelerating divergence in the basic civil rights and liberties available in red state versus blue state Americans. And not just regarding abortion, it would also solidify the transition toward a political system in which culture, not class, is the principal dividing line between the parties. That's interesting. This, of course, is the complete opposite of how conservatives see things. They see the last couple of elections as showing that class differences are at the heart of culture, at the heart of family structures and the heart of other things. That paragraph also glosses over the fact that how you word questions about Roe point out sharp differences between the American people. It is true that a majority, overwhelming majority of Americans say they don't want to overturn Roe. The problem is that an overwhelming majority of Americans favor European-style restrictions on abortion that haven't been allowed by the Supreme Court because of the laws and logic and the regime of court decisions placed after Roe and built on Roe. So what we have here is a nation caught in between two extreme positions. And what the overthrow of Roe would do was allow them to have these political battles closer to their home bases in regions, which gets us to that really interesting phrase, the accelerating divergence in the basic civil rights and liberties available 
to red state versus blue state Americans, and not just regarding abortion. And there you have it. What this is really about is, to some degree, federalism. It's about whether there are crucial issues on which states are allowed to take positions, where California might have a different set of laws about abortion than Louisiana, and that a state like Missouri or Kansas might have some compromise position somewhere in the middle. And as we discussed last week, if we get into these debates about compromising, what restrictions are acceptable, what restrictions are not, at that point, a kind of centrist coalition becomes all the more important in American life. And the possibility, as I said last week, of pro-life Democrats kind of rising back to power at the state and local levels becomes a real possibility, and the fact that some Republicans would have to be willing to negotiate with them also becomes a reality. But there you have it. Is that kind of centrist dialogue, is federalism possible at all in a nation that is as divided as we currently have? And I've collected a number of different anecdotes right here that kind of illustrate this. I mean, some of the ones that I like the most, a political scientist named Larry Sabato posted an analysis a couple of years ago in which he noted of the nation's 3,143 counties, the number of super landslide counties where a presidential candidate won at least 80% of the vote has jumped from 6% in 2004 to 22% in 2020. Now, if, if you want a more practical illustration of that, you have a, a wonderful little illustration that I saw the other day. Let me see if I can find the actual numbers. It boiled down to the fact that in, in recent election, Democrats have been winning something like 80 to 85 percent of the elections in counties that contain a Whole Foods grocery store, but they've only been winning like 30 percent of the votes or elections in counties that contain a Cracker Barrel. Now, does that strike you as a matter of class or of politics to some degree there? But for me, Everything flashes back. Before I get to the David French quote that I want to share with people, let me reintroduce them to two very important ideas in my own life and my own reporting. When I wrote my own 10th anniversary column, back then for Scripps Howard, I did a column called 10 Years of Reporting on a Fault Line, and it reported about a book that had just come out by James Davison Hunter called Culture Wars. And he noted that the growing division in America was not basically religious, but based on conflicting definitions of truth. And he divided it into the land of the Orthodox, small o, and I should stress, the Orthodox, which are people who believe that eternal transcendent truth exists, and the land of the progressives, which is a land where people believe that truth 
is evolving and changing and that there are few, if any, moral laws that are permanent, which, of course, is a collision between classic Christian concepts and Jewish concepts of natural law and things like Pope John Paul II's Veritas Splendor. Then in 2003, that would have been like 1993, in 2003, a very important author named Thomas Edsel, who teaches at the Columbia School of Journalism in New York City and writes constantly for The Atlantic and others, The Washington Post, wrote an essay called Blue Movie. And you'll remember this in a minute and I start talking about what's in it. And it, it flashes back to 1996 when some of the pollsters working for Bill Clinton discovered a polling technique that would help them predict who was going to vote for Clinton and who was going to vote for Bob Dole. And in their polls, they asked the following questions. Do you believe homosexuality is morally wrong? Do you ever personally look at pornography? Would you look down on someone who had an affair while married? Do you believe sex before marriage is morally wrong? And then the fifth question was, is religion very important in your life? And what they found is if respondents took the liberal stand, morally liberal, not politically liberal, morally liberal, stand on three of the five questions, they were overwhelmingly in favor of Clinton. And if they took the conservative stand on three of the four questions, they were overwhelmingly going to vote for Dole. And Edsel noted at that point that these cultural and even religious questions were much better predictors than any strictly political questions that you could ask in polling. That's 1996. So with that in mind, let me lead to the opening of David French's book, which I think you'll hear why I'm doing this. It's going to lead us right back to that Atlantic piece, which we can discuss further. The opening of his book it's time for Americans to wake up to a fundamental reality. The continued unity of the United States cannot be guaranteed. Right now, he said, quote, There is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it's pulling us apart, unquote. And he noted that this is they're divided in what news channels they watch and trust. They are divided increasingly by what popular culture they consume and what companies they trust. They are divided over what major corporations and forms of technology they trust. And here's the key. They, and this is something that people have been noting for three decades now, they are increasingly packing up their families and moving to zip codes that enable them to live safely the lives that they want to live and the choices they want to make. Which, at that point, French says, if we don't have a working form of federalism, we're going to end up in a form of economic, academic, and legal civil war. So, Terry, given the fact that that 1996 predictive survey that was developed by the Clinton administration has as its last and I think probably most important factor a question about religion. Since religion is such an important factor and a predictor 
Will the media ever acknowledge this in the case of our current divide? Well, I think they increasingly are recognizing it, and we're seeing that in increasing coverage, which I, I wrote a post about just today on on Wednesday. They finally have acknowledged that the world of white evangelicalism is quite complex. And the Atlantic and the New York Times and others are desperately seeking evangelicals that they can like. And I think they're going to be surprised to discover that a lot of kind of centrist evangelicals are still devoutly pro-life and are essentially dedicated to free speech and the First Amendment and, you know, and other things like that, which means they're going to clash with the emerging worldview of the media institutions, entertainment institutions, and others that lots of folks have started calling the cathedral as in the cathedral of kind of liberalism and secularism. But what we really are talking about here is a factor that at least 25 years ago, I started calling the Pew Gap. And that grew out of my how much that uh, Atlantic piece impressed me, which was that the degree to which people take the practice of their religious faith seriously and actually attempt to live it out in their daily life is increasingly a defining characteristic of one of the major pieces of the Republican Party's coalition. The Democrats, on the same time, have to come to terms with the fact that there is a growing disquiet among Latino voters, a key part of their coalition, on a lot of moral and cultural and social issues, as well as economic issues, and frankly, immigration. But maybe not in the way Democrats want to think they're upset. If the Hispanic vote splits, that's a whole new reality in American politics. And at some point, I think we're going to see a kind of morally conservative African-American voice emerge out of the more conservative black churches, the Church of God in Christ, the growing black wing of the Southern Baptist Convention, the large and very diverse ethnic churches of the Assemblies of God, and a lot of others. But to me, I think the question is, what allowed things to blow up so big in the Trump year and in the two years leading up to Trump? I mean, other than the Democrats nominating I don't want to relive the 2016 election, the Democrats nominating a candidate that gave Trump a serious chance to win, which would be Hillary Clinton. I think the more important question here that Christians have to think about, especially in their own homes, in their own churches, and in their own pews, to what degree is the actual technology of the Internet and the World Wide Web changing the basic discussion patterns and information patterns in American life that is making this divide more and more stark and bitter and more explosive. And at that point, all you have to see is that someone who essentially is a kind of Texas-style libertarian like Elon Musk emerging as the ultimate boogeyman of the cultural left by threatening to turn Twitter into a place where both sides get to state what they believe. 
I think ultimately the question is not only federalism, but what happens to attempts to redefine the First Amendment? And ahead of that are two crucial political questions is, is there any coalition to change the Electoral College to give blue zip codes more power over the states that have the same number of senators and have their own electoral votes and everything versus the, the blue zones that have more people in liberal cities? And then before that, the filibuster and whether there will be any attempt to pack the Supreme Court. And here we go. That's all heading into the elections this coming fall, at least in the House of Reps and the Senate. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Glad to be here. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.